when you look at the market, it definitely seems like it's moving away from a lot of those higher beta reopening trades. It definitely seems like the market is gravitating back towards those pre-COVID comfort zones. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. As the earnings season kicks off in the U.S., markets have begun to show a preference for quality and fundamentals over sentiment and momentum. So today, Mark Reyes, Chris Heeks, and Alfred Lee dig into the first round of financial statements to see if the results are strong enough to weather macro headwinds out of China, the Federal Reserve, and recent inflation data. Our experts also look at currency hedging strategies, the natural gas shortage in Europe, and ways to monetize the current volatility. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Hello, and welcome to our BMO ETF weekly update call with our team of experts. I'm your host, Mark Race, at a product for BMO Global Asset Management Canada. We're joined today by Chris Heeks and Alfred Lee. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Good morning. And of course, thanks to everyone listening in. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time to connect with BMO ETFs. Let's get right into the questions. Uh, we've got the earnings seasons, of course, kicking off uh, down in the U.S. Looks like it's off to a good start. Your thoughts on the best way to, to play this trend, especially considering the recent dip that we've had in markets? Thanks. Sure. Uh, I could take that one. I mean, you know, if you look at the earnings seasons, uh, definitely off to a good start in the U.S., uh, which I think is a huge positive given that it's an offset a lot of the negative news that we've seen in the broader market over the last couple of weeks and, and even months. Um, but when you look at you know the U.S. banks, they essentially kickstarted the earnings cycle um, with some pretty sizable beats across the board. So, um, you know, a few to note are, you know, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, Goldman Sachs and Citi um, are just a few examples of banks that came in ahead of estimates and, you know, some of them actually came in, you know, well ahead of market expectations as well. Um, so I think, you know, the earnings seasons or, or the earnings results with a lot of these banks, um, I think it's another, you know, positive catalyst for a sector that already has a lot of tailwinds going for it. Um, I think in, in addition to the expectations that, you know, a lot of the U.S. banks are going to uh, raise dividends, uh, given the positive uh, Fed test uh, results. Um, I think when you look at the U.S. banks overall, uh, the valuations in the sector, it looks really attractive still. I mean, um, when you look at you know ZBK, which is our equal weight U.S. banks ETF, uh, the P-E ratio on a current uh, uh, basis is about a 13 times earnings right now. Uh, the broader S&P 500 is trading at about 26.8 times current earnings. Uh, so definitely the valuations would suggest that there is potentially uh, more upside. So that's, you know, one area that I would focus on in terms of, you know, potentially looking for areas that, um, you know, that are buying uh, on the dip. Uh, but I think overall, you know, when you are looking for, um, you know, earnings results uh, so far that we've seen, uh, the positive surprises hasn't been really limited to the banking sector. So uh, the positive surprises have been pretty uniform across all the different sectors. 
Uh, one thing I would note is that if you look at um, you know investor behavior over the last couple of months, it definitely seems like they're not buying the dip on a lot of the you know so-called meme stocks. As in, uh, you know, it hasn't really been that as apparent lately. Um, so I think you know so far uh, over the last couple of months, it definitely feels like the market is more focused on earnings and the quality of earnings rather than you know sentiment or momentum or you know focusing on short squeezes, which I think is you know healthy for the market. Um, but you know that would naturally lead to uh, high quality stocks or blue chips. You know personally, I, I think a, a good rule of thumb is that uh, focusing on high quality blue chip stocks. Anytime you see a market pullback, I think over the long term it is tends to work out as a, as a pretty good strategy. So ZUQ, which is our uh, U.S. high quality ETF, I think that's a good long term holding, as we've highlighted a number of times on this call. Uh, but I think um, going forward, or at least for the current environment. The reason why I like this one is because, uh, you know, as I noted, when you look at the market, it definitely seems like it's moving away from a lot of those higher beta reopening trades. Um, it definitely seems like the market is gravitating back towards, you know, those pre-COVID comfort zones. So a lot of those, you know, defensive growth-oriented areas, so higher higher quality stocks, lower beta stocks. Um, I think especially given a lot of the macroeconomic worries. Um, especially China and a lot of the greater risks out there outside of China. So that includes inflation, that tapering, um, higher rates ahead. I think uh, given all those risk factors, uh, quality is well positioned because of that. I mean, we are screening for uh, stocks that, you know, uh, that have, you know, uh, competitive advantages in, in their respective sectors. So I think uh, that means that a lot of these companies will have a, a greater ability to pass on a lot of these higher input costs. Uh, to the end consumer. And because we are screening for stocks that have low financial leverage and a low debt load, that means as rates rise and as the yield curve starts to steepen, um, they're going to be more much uh, better positioned than, you know, the broader market overall. So, you know, two areas that I focus on, again, are uh, high quality and, and U.S. banks. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. And uh, I think we can stay with the U.S. theme here. One area that we haven't talked about as much lately uh, is currency and currency hedging. So we have seen a little bit of movement on, on the U.S. dollar over the last week or so. Uh, what's going on there? And as well, uh, the team's expectations going forward for USD, looking into year-end and beyond into 2022. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Mark. We've seen uh, the U.S. dollar traded as high as a dollar one twenty-eight about towards the end of September. Um, now it's trading down towards one twenty-three. That long-term average kind of is always around 125. So it's, it's kind of vacillating around the long-term average. If you look at the correlation to the S&P 500, it's been, you know, almost inverse. So, uh, which is what you typically expect. So towards the end of September, you know, there's really heightened concerns around a correction and the S&P was wobbling um, kind of to close the quarter. You know, that, that trend essentially has just reversed in the last three weeks. And now we're back to where, you know, almost the market high um, of 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 earlier September. So consequently, as risk has come on, you know, that that U.S. dollar strength has weakened. Um, you know, you look at U.S. dollar Canada, the, you know, some of the things, you know, we're thinking about, you know, energy prices are obviously strong. The Canada rate hike kind of lift off is expected sooner um, than the U.S. Um, so both factors pointing towards Canadian dollar strength. Um, I think that continued equity and reopening, you know, economic reopening probably skews to further Canadian strength, all things being equal. Uh, if you take a survey of where the estimates on the street are, 
Um, it's not it's not all that compelling. Um, but uh, you know, as I mentioned, we're about 123 right now. The the consensus is about 122. So it's not a lot to hang your hat on. But the analysts are skewing to a little bit of Canadian dollar strength. You know, I, I always think from a from a portfolio point of view, um, you know having us dollar exposure in your portfolios it's kind of like a free lunch in that it's a diversifying asset so it can improve your portfolio risk characteristics you know always think for a balanced investor you know 60 40 investor to have you know 15 to 20 percent um of us dollar exposed you know you know is probably a reasonable level and like i said can provide some diversification benefits when when markets sell off in particular so that's kind of that's kind of the strategic view. Um, in terms of the tactical view, you know, perhaps shifting towards a little bit more Canadian strength, um, you know, would be would be per- perhaps a trade. So arguing for hedge DTFs, but you know, I think you recognize that the level, you know, it's not a high conviction level. So you know, I tend to be more closer to that long term strategic, um, you know, strategic level and look for you know, a swing one way or the other to really put on a tactical hedge. But, um, you know, I think, I think we are seeing some, some, uh, some good news for the Canadian dollar. So, you know, if there's a, if there's a trade there, it's probably thinking about that, but, you know, definitely encourage investors to think about their overall level of U S dollars uh, in their portfolio and recognizing that, you know, some exposure to the USD can help, you know, particularly in, in times of volatility. Right. Thanks for that, Chris. Um, let's stick with energy. You mentioned that as part of your, uh, currency conversation there. Let's go to natural gas. And and we've seen quite a bit of price movement lately where natural gas has has come off quite a bit, uh, even as we've been warned as consumers uh, that that energy costs are going to be really high this winter. So what's the cause of that price movement? And if you put it to an ETF, uh, can you talk about ZEO, our equal weight uh, large cap oil and gas? Yeah, so we, we've seen quite a drop in uh, natural gas prices lately, as you mentioned. Um, so since early October, the prices have come off quite a bit. Um, right uh, this morning, they've been trading around that $5 uh, per BTU level. Um, but, you know, we noted on the, the podcast a couple of weeks ago that um, initially a lot of that surge in natural gas prices has really been driven by a lot of the supply uh, shortages coming out of Europe um, more specifically. But in recent weeks, you know, why the prices have come back uh, down recently is because Russia, um, they've stated that they, they're going to boost supply to Europe, uh, which has been the main reason why natural gas, is, uh, natural gas prices have backed off. Uh, but more recently, I think, you know, when you look at a lot of the recent energy auctions in Europe, um, it doesn't show that Russia has booked any additional capacity to Europe. So, um, you know, it looks like right now Russia is using that um, natural gas supply as a bargaining chip for um, to get a potential green light for a pipeline that they want between Russia and Germany. Um, so overall, even if Russia does get its way and it does uh, start to supply uh, natural gas to Europe and does shore up um, a, a lot of the um, you know supply chain shortages, it doesn't look like you know that's going to put an end, an end to the energy crisis. Um, right now, I think if you look longer term, a lot of the uh, recent global government policies uh, to get to net carbon neutral, um, they have very aggressive timelines. So the U.S., for example, wants to get to net carbon neutral by 2050, uh, which means that a lot of the new uh, capital expenditures has been placed towards you know clean energy infrastructure, and very little has been devoted to uh, traditional energy sources. So 
you know, even though clean energy is the future, um, in the next you know several years, half decade, a lot of that demand is going to be placed on natural gas and oil in terms of supplying energy to the grid. Um, so in terms of ZEO, uh, we do believe that it is uh, very well positioned. Um, when you look at uh, weather in uh, North America, it's been pretty mild. Uh, so we're well into the fall season in North America, but you know, especially where we live, you know, certain days it's still certainly feels like summer right now. Um, but you know, eventually that temperature will drop. So eventually, when it does drop, it is going to, you know, that demand is going to hit the grid in, in Canada as well. So um, ZEO, which is our equal weight oil and gas ETF, I think it's a it's a great way to play the current energy crisis. Um, as I mentioned, it doesn't look like that energy crisis is going to end anytime soon. So you know, sure, we, we could potentially get supply to Europe through Russia. Um, you know, the OPEC nations will potentially supply um, additional crude to, um, you know, the global economy as well. Uh, but overall, I, I think, you know, with a lot of the talks of a lot of companies returning to office, uh, that's going to place a lot of demand or further emphasis on oil. So right now, if you look around, even though a lot of the buildings remain uh, relatively empty, there are a lot of car, cars on the road because, a lot of people commuting to work, they've been hesitant to get on to, you know, public transportation. Um, so I think as a lot of people move, you know, uh, get back to work, uh, there's going to be a lot more cars on the road, which, again, is going to place more emphasis on oil. Uh, but another, you know, good reason why I like Dedio is because whereas a lot of companies outside of the energy sector, um, typically higher energy costs is a negative, meaning that, you know, means higher, higher transportation costs, higher input costs. I think if you invest in the energy sector, it's a good way to get that higher energy cost to work in your favor. And if you look at ZEO right now, it has a you know 3.2% dividend yield, so it's not a good, it's not a bad way to play the uh, current energy crisis. Great, thanks for that, Alfred. A good look at uh, what's going on in energy markets, and certainly a good opportunity to play it via ZEO. You are listening to Views from the Desk, a weekly edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying today's discussion, we encourage you to check out our deep dive episodes where we take you under the hood of BMO GAM's product suite. Check out episode 83 in the same podcast series where Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets, introduces his new U.S. all-cap strategy. This exciting new ETF, ticker ZACE, ZACE, helps you invest across all market cap exposures to capture growth in companies both big and small. Now, advisors have been coming in quite a bit, ironically, as we talk about uh, a market tip, about the the VIX coming back down to what we'll call almost pre, pre-pandemic levels, uh, down around 16 now. And they're wondering how does that impact the ability for you guys to operate in the option markets, uh, specifically with the covered call ETFs or even ZPay or premium yield. Um, Is it starting to impact your ability to generate premiums or are you adjusting how you write those options? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, I think one great thing about our overlays is we're always adjusting and adapting to the market conditions. Um, and we've got that ability within these overlays to adjust the strike prices to still collect, you know, really solid amount of yield. Um, one thing I would say, though, is we're not going to compromise our principles and get too greedy and forego upside because we know, you know, investors want that mixture of income and growth. Um, I think if you look at VIX at 15, it's like certainly the lows of the last year, um, but still higher than pre-COVID. You know, going into COVID, we were kind of in the, those lower teens. 
you know, call it 12. And even a couple of years before that, VIX was, VIX was around 10 and, 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 and even dipped below 10 into the single digits. And, you know, you know, be quite honest, you know, we were, you know, it was very, um, you know, we, we could run those mandates very effectively and we can still bring in a significant level of income. Um, like I say, we don't compromise our principles, but, but that ability of the overlay to adjust, you know, is, is strong. And, you know, I don't think it's a, it should be a large concern. You know, maybe one comment specifically with regards to ZPay, um, you know, one nice thing is although that VIX is at, you know, about kind of 16 more of a historical average, you know, ZPay, a large, you know, chunk of that strategy is selling puts to the downside and and puts are still quite attractively priced. Um, there's a lot of investors and market participants concerned about downside. So those puts are, uh, you know, pretty attractively priced and that, you know, I don't think that that feature is going away. So ZPay can monetize that and collect higher higher premiums there. But I think overall, um, you know, not not too much of a concern. Um, and, you know, um, with VIX at 15, you know, my, my inclination is with everything on the horizon, you know, we'll, we'll likely see it spike spike back up this fall or into next year. Um, there's a lot of things that have to happen from a macro perspective, you know, with regards to tapering and interest rates. And and um, so, so you know, overall, wouldn't be too concerned, you know, that the, the mandates are running, you know, exactly as designed. We're only covering half the portfolio on our cover call strategies. So, um, we're always have that great exposure to growth on half the portfolio and, and even on the half that we're covering in this volatility environment, you know, this is a historical average where we are right now. So, so not, not, uh, not too much of an issue. Uh, we can't write calls, you know, 20% out of the money like we were doing during COVID, but we can still, you know, achieve some pretty attractive, um, you know, return risk kind of trade-offs and, and generate that kind of call it that target three to 4% on our cover calls. And uh, so, yeah, so, so uh, not, not really too much of an issue. And, and like I said, even when the VIX was at 10, we were still, you know, having a lot of success with these overlays. So we'll just, you know, keep, keep stick to the principles, but yeah, no major concern. And I think, um, you know, the markets do look good for these strategies to, to generate income should volatility increase. We'll, we'll probably generate even a little bit more. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. I think perhaps we're all used to the volatility we've seen over the last 18 months. It's, it's hard to look back before that, but a good reminder of, of where that uh, VIX level has been and where we've been successful in writing those call options. I want to turn back to financials. We talked about earnings in U.S. banks. Um, but with that financials rally and with, an, with of course, a new Bitcoin product down in the U.S., what does it all mean for fintech if we think about our innovation ETFs? Thanks. Yeah, so you know, as I mentioned, I think um, you know we've seen a pretty pretty sizable rally in U.S. banks on the back of the earnings and you know other positive news on the sector as well. Um, but we've also seen a pretty good rally in Canadian banks as well. Um, I think you know the common perception is that you know these two areas, uh, banks and fintech, um, they're direct competition for each other. Um, that's you know, in my opinion, that's simply not the case. A lot of people, you know, when they talk about centralized finance, decentralized finance, or DeFi, as they call it, uh, the common belief is that, you know, fintech will replace banks. And, you know, again, that's simply not the case. Um, when you look at uh, Zfin, which is our fintech innovations ETF, um, you know, there are companies in there that I would say are, you know, more, you know, directly, um, you know, in, in the banking business, or, you know, um, I would say they're, Somewhat competitors like LendingTree, for example, which is 
you know, an online lending uh, marketplace company. Uh, so that's a good example that is uh, more of a direct competition for banks. But in general, uh, most of the companies in fintech are, I would say, you know, complementary or they have partnerships in many ways uh, with the bank. So, you know, I think banks and fintech companies, the way I look at it is that they're all part of the broader, you know, new financial ecosystem. So PayPal is a good example of this where, um, you know, PayPal, when you have your PayPal account, it's set up uh, and it's linked to your credit card or debit card. Uh, so ultimately, you know, anytime you make a purchase, it is good for the banks, given that, you know, a lot of these credit card companies and debit cards are supplied by the banks. Um, you know, on top of that, I think, you know, banks, uh, you know, because they have had very positive earnings and very strong earnings, uh, it does allow the banks to, you know, grow their loaning facilities, makes them more willing to lend. Uh, it's going to make them uh, in better position to raise capital for a lot of these fintech companies as well. Um, so another good example is uh, Square, which is a company in um, Zetfin. Uh, it's a mobile payments company, uh, but they essentially make those uh, point-of-sale terminals. And again, you know, this is going to make the whole retail shopping experience uh, more efficient. So as they, you know, as you tap your credit card or your debit card, um, you know, as, in, uh, as economic activity picks up, you know, ultimately that retail shopping or increased, uh, uh, you know, retail shopping efficiency, that's going to be good for the bank. So uh, since the end of September, uh, ZDK, which is our equal weight U.S. bank ETF, that's up 4.1%. Uh, ZFIN is up 5.2%. So I think that's a good illustration on how um, these two areas could simultaneously do well together and the more partners than competitors. Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. ZFIN, certainly an interesting choice to to play that trend. And I think we're, we're, we're seeing continued strength there across the innovation suite. So a good time to be looking at that area of the marketplace. Got one more question for you guys this morning. Uh, question coming in from an advisor. The gold trade, uh, once again, picking up, certainly after uh, a lengthier downtrend. Uh, what's going on there when we consider the recent price activity of gold? Thanks. Yeah, gold gold is kind of trading back towards that $1,800 level an ounce. You know, I think it's, um, you know, gold has, you know, something working for and working against it in my mind. You know, the, what's the biggest factor working for it is, is the, um, you know, growth in the money supply. And gold is seen as a, you know, a safe haven, a store of asset value. And as, as obviously as, as uh, modern monetary theory increases the, mo- you know, increases the money supply, that is, that is, that is a, um, you know, that's a bullish indicator for gold. You know, that being said, gold is also a risk off indicator. So obviously, as we've gone to market highs on, on the S&P 500, I think investors have been seeking um, those returns. But, you know, again, like the um, FX conversation, I think, you know, gold is another great diversifying asset for portfolios. You don't necessarily need a lot of it in your portfolio, um, you know, as it can be volatile. But, um, you know, it can add benefits um, to, to portfolios. So uh, ZGD, our equal weight global gold ETF, um, you know, a satellite weight in this portfolio. You know, we do think, um, you know, these, these securities are probably, um, you know, uh, on the undersold, um, you know, relatively attractive buys. Because if you look at where this ETF was trading, you know, last year, you know, it was probably about 20% higher than, than our current levels. But the you know the underlying view and dynamics behind gold, I don't think they've really changed. And you know, um, you know, gold is an asset that will, um, you know, respond should should markets 
return, um, you know, risk averse, gold is likely to, you know, increase in value from that perspective and, and the increase of the money supply as well. So, um, you know, having a small satellite position, I think, um, you know, to be attractive, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of sectors of the market um, that are that are up on the year, but there's not too many that are down. So, you know, I think it's, you know, maybe time to to take a look at that. And, if you know, if you don't have gold in your portfolio, maybe take a look whether you want a small satellite position there. I think it can be useful for advisors to just round out that portfolio construction, um, you know, a little bit further perhaps than if you don't own it. So, yeah, I think it's interesting to look at it, you know, particularly when there hasn't been a lot of interest in the past few months, perhaps a good time to take another look at that exposure. Great. Thanks for that, Chris. Well, that's all the questions that have come in this week. Uh, So I want to thank everyone for listening in. We certainly appreciate your time. Thanks, of course, to both Chris and Alfred, some really insightful comments uh, covering a lot of different areas in the market and giving us all some really strong ideas that we can take home to our own day-to-day and our conversations for the remainder of the week. So with that, I want to wish everyone a great day. Thank everyone one last time and see you next week. Thank you. To Mark Reyes, Chris Heeks, and Alfred Lee for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about ETF strategies that are tailored to an uncertain economic climate, including ZUQ as a core equity holding. Our experts also discussed smart ways to access the U.S. banks, oil and gas producers, and covered cost strategies. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.